Welcome to the very first episode of Unpack Everything, Science Education Reform in the Real World. As Dan and I sat down and brainstormed potential ideas for the future of this podcast, we thought it might make sense to start with a set of episodes that kind of lays the foundation of what we mean when we say science education reform. We've started affectionately referring to this set of episodes as the basics. So the NGSS have been around now for a decade, but we know that depending on where you are and what context you're in, you might have varying levels of understanding of things like the framework, NGSS, the three dimensions, SCPs, CCCs, DCIs, phenomena, and storylines. So the teachers and researchers we'll be chatting with in our first chunk of episodes will help to introduce us to these basics, share how they were informed by years of research, and explain what it can look like when we teach this way in our classroom with students. We hope these first few episodes can serve as a jumping off point for our future conversations and also provide a reference point that you can always return back to in the future if you need a refresher. Yeah, we're excited that after hearing that trailer, you want to join us for our first episode. Our guest today is someone I'm really excited to have, one of the big names in science education today, and interest of full disclosure, my boss, Brian Reiser. Um, Brian is the Orrington Lunt Professor of Learning Sciences in the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University. He researches how to make science learning more meaningful in K-12 classrooms as students investigate questions and problems that they identify. Brian also leads the Next Gen Storylines team at Northwestern, which I'm privileged to be a part of. In recent years, this team has been part of the OpenSide Developers Consortium, a partnership that's designing and field testing free, high-quality materials for grades K-12. through These materials use a storylines and structural model in which students help manage the class's knowledge building. We figure it out together. Brian was a member of the National Research Council's Board on Science Education and helped develop the framework for K-12 science education on which the next generation science standards are modeled. So with that, um, excited for this conversation with Brian and here's the show. Brian, welcome. Could you introduce yourself, your name and your position, what you what you do? Sure. Thanks for having me. I am Brian Reiser. I'm a professor in learning sciences at Northwestern University in the School of Education and Social Policy. I work with our pre-service teachers and also with our uh, master's and PhD students in learning sciences. And our research examines science classroom teaching and learning and we focus both on student learning and on teacher learning and we focus on designs of interventions that can help teachers and kids experience science teaching and learning in ways that are more meaningful for all those involved problems that are more meaningful for kids things that are more interesting for teachers to teach and try and collect data about how that's working and how we could do it better thank you and you know, Brian, you've obviously been involved a lot in some recent efforts to try to improve science education. And in the trailer, we talked about the framework and NGSS, and we we name dropped some terms. Um, so I'll throw it I'll throw it to Sam to to talk about that. Yeah. So we want to start out with just some laying some groundwork of what these things are. 
Um, in education, we sometimes give things short names or acronyms and we throw those around like everyone knows what we're talking about. <laughs> we never do that. <laughs> so if you could, in a concise way, kind of tell us what the framework is short for and what NGSS is short for. Sure. So the framework is short for the framework for K-12 science education, which is a document put together by the National Research Council. And the job of the National Research Council, working with the National Academies for Science, Engineering, and Medicine, is to provide policy guidance that comes from research. So there'll be a particular question given to some branch of the National Research Council, and they'll be asked, well, what does research say about this particular problem? And are there any recommendations we can make based on the research? So the framework is the document that a committee put together, and I was, I was uh, a member of that committee, to address the question, well, what has been working well in science classrooms since um, the last round of science standards in the 1990s? What's been working well? What challenges have emerged? And what have studies of kids learning and of how teachers teach suggested about how maybe we could do a better job with new kinds of standards that reflect those, res those research recommendations. And the framework is the document put together by the committee that summarized those recommendations and kind of laid out a blueprint for some important shifts in the way science standards were being developed and written and assessed across many different states. And the idea is that that would be a new kind of uh, set of guidelines that would inform everything from curriculum materials to how we prepare teachers to teach science to uh, professional learning and importantly, um, state systems of assessment. So I'm kind of gathering, Brian, that like National Research Council says, hey, we want to know what does the research say about what we need in new science standards? Is, is that pretty accurate? Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. Right. And then the, they put together um, or there's, there's a, a board on science education that was responsible for this particular report working within the National Academies. And they put together a panel of expert scientists, um, learning scientists, science education researchers, science education policy folks, teachers, all different kinds of expertise to work together on synthesizing the literature, the research literature, and drawing up some recommendations. And, and I was a member of that, that panel. That sounds like an enormous task. <laughs> it was actually a lot of fun, but also quite challenging given um, all of the pragmatic constraints. So the idea was what could standards look like within essentially within our current educational system? So being realistic about how many years of science, for example, are taught in high school and making recommendations that might push push the current status of how much time is given to science in elementary, but being somewhat realistic about these constraints. And so, for example, the framework has, we ended up deciding to have earth and space science as a key part of the framework, along with physical science and biological science as three strands combined with a strand of 
engineering practices and knowledge. And many folks look at that and think that that reflects a lot of content that is difficult for states or districts that may only have students taking science for two or three years in high school. Mm-hmm. So it, it you're definitely working under some significant constraints there. Um, how, I mean, how, how do you go about weighing that and saying like, this is what's important versus this is what's realistic? That was one of the first things the framework committee worked on was thinking about how do we identify the key ideas? And we didn't want to just sort of take a poll of existing standards and say, well, what have we been doing so far? Because uh, a lot of the research we were looking at said, you know, our across the country, our, our state standards are really trying to do too much. And doing it superficially or more superficially than is effective. So the expression that that came out of um, some international comparisons was um, the U.S. standards are a mile wide and an inch deep. You know, there's just too much stuff and we go from topic to topic to topic. And um, one of the major recommendations that we were trying to work on in the framework was this idea that we would push in more depth in a way that was more coherent for learners, building on their experiences and intuitive ideas about the world to address questions and problems that they can care about or do care about. So we articulated a number of criteria that had to do with the generativity of, of science ideas. So the, the point would be, we, we called them disciplinary core ideas. Those are the central ideas in science. And they should be generative. They should be something that leads to lots of understandings of different kinds of phenomena in the world. So that generativity is one important point. Another important point is they should be relevant to kids' lives, not something that is an esoteric detail, but something that explains things that are in the world around them. And another criterion is that it has social relevance that affects things about our planet or our environment that is important to us. So you know, any one science idea might uh, do really well on one of those criteria and less well on others. But the the goal in identifying the key disciplinary core ideas was to maximize interest, accessibility, generativity, and things that matter for for our lives. Cool. That's really helpful to hear those criteria that you used, because I think we tend to think of these you know, from the teacher perspective, it's like, oh, here's this thing that just like came down from the sky and we don't quite know what went, went into it. Yeah. And one of the important constraints that is involved in this idea of, of depth and as reflected in this idea of disciplinary core ideas in, in biology, for example, there are four disciplinary core ideas, four key ideas, and everything in biology that is in some state standard, if it's derived from the framework, should be connected in some way to those four ideas. Another aspect was that the that the disciplinary core ideas are the same four that are in K through five as are in middle school and high school. Mm. So they should be something that we can learn about more deeply as time goes on, but get some initial access somewhere in that K-5 time period. Wow. So it seems like 
there was a lot of thought that went into putting this framework together and mapping out like the overall vision of a child's path through science education from kindergarten all the way to 12th grade. I'm wondering how that vision turned into the NGSS and why, why we have both, like what's the benefit of having standards that go along with this framework? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question. And one of the things that I think was involved perhaps in the conceptualizing of this as a two-step process was in order to make this really a principled process, before we get into all of the details about what exactly state standards might look like, to have a conceptual design first that we could share and get feedback on and argue about and iterate on and improve. And so rather than jumping right away to the standards, which Common Core Math and Language Arts had had done, we were able to look at you know what worked well about that process and and some of the obstacles that arose and the board that put together this this work plan conceptualized it as having first a framework document that then another group could work with to create the actual standards so representatives of 26 states built the next generation science standards from the framework and for those states that didn't want to adopt something that was put together by a large committee of lots of different states, they could build their own state standards, as some states have done, using the research-based recommendations of the framework. And so I think in hindsight, the two-step process has really turned out to be a good idea because there are a number of states that have taken a, a slightly different path and they're, you know have their own variation on the ideas in the framework that are different from NGSS, and if it may work better in their state for it to be a uh, a completely, this is our state and only our state thing, rather than we're in this pool of 26 states that all together thought the next generation science standard would be a good idea. If I can follow up on that. So one thing that's really striking me in what you say is, it sounds like if somebody came up to me and said, hey, this NGSS thing, who who's responsible for this? Like, whose idea was this? The answer is like a lot of people. A lot of people, yeah. Because the framework had multiple rounds of iteration where public drafts were released and circulated and different kinds of groups, science teacher groups, scientists, groups of scientists weighed in. Uh, members of the public were given the opportunity to weigh in policymakers, state folks, administrators, teachers, principals, anyone who wanted to could weigh in on the framework itself, which was essentially this blueprint that articulated the way that standards would be written as a combination of three dimensions. So far, I've only talked about the disciplinary core ideas and not the other two dimensions, science and engineering practices and cross-cutting concepts. So there were there were multiple rounds of feedback there. And then a second team came in where 26 different states had the opportunity and chose to participate. And they brought together multiple kinds of experts from within each of their states to actually implement the plan of the framework into what became NGSS. And that that had multiple rounds of, of feedback as well. Oh, including a review by the committee that wrote the framework for K-12 science education, a review of the NGSS to, to address the question does this system of NGSS implement the vision of the framework? Is it 
authentic and, and accurate to the to the framework specifications. Mm-hmm. So one thing you brought up, Brian, is when we look at the standards, one thing that's extremely striking is how much more colorful it is than similar documents might have been in the past. D- does that have anything to do with this three-dimensional thing you're talking about? And like what what what's behind the three-dimensionality and what what's the benefit or goal of that? The one key idea to make learning more meaningful and more connected to kids' lives and more connected to things that kids care about is to always pair the uh, a science idea with doing something with it in the world, either explaining something that happens in the real world or predicting something that might happen or figuring out how something works that's part of our modern world or addressing a problem that we face. Like, well, why do a lot of the sources of energy that we use somehow cause this kind of pollution that's that is causing problems and why would something going into the air which is a tasteless colorless odorless gas affect our climate that's weird and so the whole point of the three dimensions is that rather than ask kids you know what are the different parts of the cell or how many different kind of clouds are there or, you know, what's the name of this animal in Latin, which isn't necessarily the most meaningful kind of thing, rather than a an idea just sort of decontextualized. Every single standard is using an idea to do something, explain something, analyze something, predict something, solve a problem. So the disciplinary core ideas represent the fundamental understandings, the practices, science and engineering practices represent the way that we use those ideas to make sense of phenomena, things that are occurring in the world that we want to be able to explain or to solve problems in the world. And the cross-cutting concepts are the third dimension, which are the sort of key ideas that are really general ideas that are helpful to understand across all different kinds of science. Like we're often trying to look at a system and what are the things that are keeping that system stable or making it change? And why does one thing in a system affect another? And so that approach of looking at a system and looking for cause and effect and looking for how the different parts work together, that's something general that that is helpful for students to learn about, regardless of whether they're looking at a climate system or a, or a body system or a design system, like trying to figure out how a cell phone works. Now, one thing that... Well, first of all, um, the three dimensions you just talked about, if you're very confused about what those are and you want to hear more, stay tuned because that's basically the next few episodes of the show. But I do want to follow up on one thing you said, Brian, which is you talked about students figuring things out. Now, that that sounds kind of cool. You know, in, in school, we had some projects that seemed like they were along those lines, but that's not what school usually is. So why does it matter that students are figuring things out? That's very different than how we might be used to doing things. Yeah. And, and I do want to stress, it's not figuring things out from scratch, you know, or, or, you know, leaving kids on their own completely. You know, it's not like the teacher brings in an interesting problem and says like, okay, kids, I'll, here's a couple of microscopes and, you know, some slides and stuff and go out and figure out this thing and I'll be back in a month and let me know what you figured out. It's a collaborative process where the teacher is starting by posing some initial problems or or 
puzzling phenomena for us to dive into and really helping orchestrate our sense making together, but involving kids in some of the steps that we might have skipped earlier of like, what do we already know that we might be able to bring in? What's a partial explanation? Where are there the holes in the explanation that we that are making us uh, think there's more to the story than we've already figured out? And like, how can we make some progress in, in figuring that out? And then then sort of providing a next piece of the puzzle or a new set of resources to work with. So it's it's not total unguided. But the idea is that we want kids not just to see full-blown answers, which for most kids, for some kids, that's okay because they ask all of the right questions that will help one dig in and see the logic underlying those particular explanations. Like, well, why is it that way? And suppose this part had been a little different. And why are you even asking this question in the first place? But typically, it's really helpful to involve students in some of that thinking. You know, what's the problem with this explanation? What does it help me explain? But where does it hit a stumbling block? And we need to extend it. So our system has not been working for a lot of kids. Uh, And so how can we get kids to see science as more relevant and also as something that they can do that capitalizes on intuitive ways of making sense of the world, resources that we bring in from our real life and from our families' experiences and so on, but extend that with some new tools that we're learning and maybe how to analyze data or how to organize our ideas into an argument supported by evidence and so on. So it sounds like when we're doing this in the classroom, this might be pretty different from what we're used to teaching or the way that we experience things as a student back in the day? Well, yes and no. I mean, I would say that it's capitalizing on some interesting things that have come up in various kinds of studies that we're trying to figure out, or the designers that are building on these ideas to build curriculum materials are trying to figure out how to share really cool things they've seen teachers do and make it more tractable for more teachers to do that. So we might find a a teacher that had a really good idea about how to situate some important science idea in a real world problem. And they spent like a lot of time getting access to the right set of data and, you know, playing around with the data to make it simple enough that their kids could make progress with it. But that's a very time consuming process. And By building curriculum materials, we can make that more tractable for others to engage their learners in that process. But it does reflect pretty meaningful shifts for many teachers. But these are all, but they're not, this is not science fiction. These are not things that we, some crazy researchers think in principle should be possible for teachers to do. The research has all revealed the promise of these approaches. And then the question is, how can we support more people in doing it more often? Mm -hmm. And one hope we have from the show is to talk to teachers who are doing these things to get their perspective and and hear what they have to say about it. Great. So you've shared with us a lot about how the framework and NGSS came to be and what it really is um, and how it might look in the classroom if we're trying to do this. We're wondering also some of the the misconceptions or maybe alternate ideas that you've heard about the framework or the NGSS since it's been out for several years now and people have started to 
to dig into it on their own or with the help of other organizations, what are some things you've heard that you maybe want to set the record straight about? Yeah, I mean, there's some things that are, I don't necessarily want to call them misconceptions. They're they're definitely things worth arguing and thinking through and looking at the evidence for. So some sometimes people uh, look at the NGSS and have the reaction that like, have we simplified our science curriculum in a way that we didn't need to? They could think of uh, maybe they they have a particular favorite part of high school chemistry or high school physics or something that they're not seeing reflected in the standard. And they say, well, this isn't as rigorous as the way we used to teach my topic. And I think there's a couple of things to say about that. So one is the rigor isn't just in the complexity or the amount of material that's covered. The rigor is in the depth of the explanations that kids are coming up with and their role in coming up with those explanations. So if students are the ones developing a mechanistic model, let's let's take let's take middle school. If students are the ones figuring out that matter has to be made of particles. It can't be one solid thing with all of the parts of matter touching each other because we're able to compress things that the, the same kind of stuff can can be made to be more dense. I can I can rearrange it in various ways. And the only thing that makes sense is to have particles that can reattach and have particles that have space between them. Rather than giving kids a model where all matter is made of particles and telling them that that's what we know, having kids work through the logic of why a particle model makes sense, it takes more time and it's really complicated. But kids aren't just going based on authority that uh, scientists got rid of some older models of how matter might be organized and ended up with a particle model. They can tell you why that makes sense and some phenomena in the world that that helps explain. And maybe we don't get as far as some teachers wanted to get in middle school about what is inside of an of a molecule or what is inside of an atom or what electrons being in orbitals, et cetera. But we have a deeper model of what it means for particles to be what are composing everything. And I can infer a lot from how those particles are moving and what happens when a collection of particles acquires more energy where more energy is transferred into that system and why that means that, you know, why it is that we can get things like phase changes and why it is that the amount of volume an object takes up might change based on its temperature and so on and so forth. So, uh, and why, for example, kinetic energy can transfer between a container and the objects that it's containing. Why does hot coffee cool off in a room and why does iced coffee warm up? And like, how does it know which way to go? And in middle school, kids can use their particle model to explain that without resorting to kind of memorize things like it always goes from more to less energy. Like, why does it do that? Because like, that's what it does. It goes from more to less energy. So it's it's depth. It may be less facts. It will be less facts. Okay. It will be less terminology, potentially. I may not be asked to memorize all of the different parts of the cell in middle school. But I can tell you why we have cells, why all living things have cells and why that's really important. So 
as we think about going for depth, you, you talked a little bit in your introduction about some of your work. What what do you see is what you're doing that is, you know, an important piece of the puzzle of making this actually happen? I think I would tie it more to the meaningful point than, than depth, um, although they're connected. The kind of materials that we develop for classrooms and the work we do with teachers to support their professional learning is organized a lot around how to capitalize on students' questions and how to get the science that we need to teach based on our standards connected to things that kids care about and are interested in understanding, connected to their own questions and problems they identify. We really want kids to see the science they're learning as answering their questions and as helping them make progress on questions and problems that they care about. So the curriculum materials that we develop try and navigate that balance between where we know we need to go in order to teach them the science that, that is that is targeted by their states and questions that that they have when we bring in interesting puzzles or real world problems. And as you think about the landscape at large, what are some other things that are happening as we try to support teachers, support students that that you're really excited about? The the thing that drives us is what I was saying earlier about making the learning more meaningful. We don't we don't need every student to graduate from K-12 and become a practicing scientist or engineer or medical technician or whatever. But we certainly will benefit as a society if more people understand what science is and how we know what we know and how we improve what we know with new evidence and new findings and understand some of the challenges in taking where the science leaves off and where we have to bring in other kinds of value systems to make decisions about how to apply what we understand about the world in the sort of engineering and societal decisions that we need to make. So one way we think and the research suggests we can do that is by involving kids more in the process of building and refining ideas and exploring science ideas to address real world problems or to critique some existing solutions and figure out like, well, what are some of the known problems and what are some of the challenges in doing better? So that is probably more important than getting more people to major in science in college, at least for a lot of the goals that a lot of us care about. And, and this approach of connecting to kids' questions and, and ideas is really key in making that work. So Brian, is there anything in particular that you'd recommend as a resource that teachers should look out for? Uh, there's a there's a wide recognition that that curriculum materials are an important piece of this puzzle, that the standards didn't just kind of move around some existing puzzle pieces of what we teach when and in what order. It really is a fundamental change in how we think about what it means to learn science. And we're going to need new teaching approaches, at least some new teaching approaches and new instructional materials, new curriculum materials. So those materials can become a catalyst for teachers working together to really explore how to make these things come alive in their classrooms. To really make this effective, we're going to have to figure out as a field how to share resources much more effectively than going through a commercial publication route. There's nothing necessarily wrong with commercial publications, but the, given that helping kids work with a classroom of kids work with ideas involves a lot of customization. You can't just follow it as a script. It's really helpful to have materials that you can tailor to your own classroom. 
And one of the important trends that's happening right now is this push toward open educational resources, toward making materials that are free to download. And your school can just download them and use them and you can adapt them and you can share ways in which you've tweaked them. And an important initiative that I've been lucky to be involved in is the Open Syed project, which has now released a full middle school series of instructional materials that are that are free to download. And for high school, high school chemistry, biology, and physics infused with earth science, one unit so far has been released and a second unit is now on its way. And by the end of 2024, the full high school program will be out. And so these are really well-designed, research-based materials that have been through rounds and rounds of review and lots of field testing by teachers across the country. And we are all hoping um, will be powerful resources that will help teachers play around with the ideas in, in NGSS and then adapt them to make them work in their local context. I'm also wondering if you want to leave with some guiding words or some advice maybe for teachers who are trying to enact the vision of the framework and use the NGSS. Uh, maybe there's some teachers have more guidance in their school than others. Some are kind of trying to do this on their own. Do you have any any words you'd like to share with them? Well, what we know from from teacher learning and maybe just from common sense is it really helps to see an example. And so it's great to read the standards or, you know, you could go and read the framework or dive into the some of the research literature that motivated some of these shifts. But really helpful is seeing actual examples of what does it look like when you're trying to build on kids' intuitive ideas? Or what would it look like to, you know, I know I need to teach chemical reactions or I know I need to teach energy transfer what would that look like to ground that in kids' questions? How would I spark those questions? And there are multiple kinds of examples that one could, one could, you know, get a group together to kind of work through and study. One kind of example that's really helpful are instructional materials, especially if you can see examples of kids' work that are what kids are doing in that kind of context. Another thing that we recommend for teacher study groups is video examples. Not to say that these are the best ways to teach or you should try and match what you see in this video, but as examples of what it can look like when you see teachers and kids grappling with um, interesting phenomena and engaging in the science and engineering practices. So start with an example. Don't don't start with everything at once. Pick, pick a sample unit or pick a practice to dig into and look at some videos together of kids engaged in that practice and try and find some resources that are designed to support kids in those practices. And start start small, start with one unit. Thank you very much, Brian. This has been a lot of fun talking with you tonight. Thanks so much, Brian. You're welcome. Thanks for putting up with me. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SciEdPod, or send us an email at unpackeverythingpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear the questions you have about science education. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Our music is Rainbows by Scott Buckley. 